to you by Chemistry. Hello and welcome back to Brought to You by Chemistry. Now we've spent a long time talking antimicrobial resistance with some brilliant experts in this series and I for one am now ready to fight some super microbes. I might lose but I'm like I'm ready, I'm, I'm amped up. But before I can do that, something that I've been wondering is what happens when antibiotics actually get into the environment and how could this affect our health? To answer those questions and more are Dr. Kurt Arden, lecturer in veterinary public health, Professor Barbara Kasparik at the University of Bath and Professor David Graham, ecosystem engineer at the University of Newcastle. Wonderful. Okay, so I'm going to start off with the really big question here. I'm going to jump to you, David. What exactly is One Health? Because I've heard that a lot and I still don't know what it means, really. Well, for a lot of years, a lot of other people didn't either. Um, The thing is that it's a fairly, it's been a term that's been used for a while, but it's been used in different disciplines uh, with different meanings. And so what we've been trying to do is consolidate what it means. And the most recent World Health Organization definition is it's, it's basically considering human, animal, plant, and environmental health in tandem relative to trying to optimize healthcare solutions. And so it's, it's a much more holistic way of viewing health protection, whether it's human health or veterinary health or environmental health. And it's really arisen because, I think it's a lot of it's written because of the AMR issue, because we found that solving AMR related problems require a much more holistic view because each of the different sectors within the wealth, One Health spectrum all contribute to the same pool of resistance. And so the bottom line is it's just more holistic thinking and it's and it's trying to lead to more holistic solutions because the ones that aren't holistic aren't working. Okay, what does the word holistic actually mean? <laughs> well, holistic basically means you're trying to, con- you must consider everything uh, that might influence the health endpoint, whatever it happens to be, whether it's crop health or human health or veterinary health. Uh, so it's really like considering every single element, all these different sectors uh, in talking about someone's health. So including like the environment. So uh, this one for you, Kurt, when talking about antimicrobial resistance, you know, we think a lot about antibiotics. How do antibiotics actually get into the environment? Because how does this pill that I take end up in the soil? Okay, so it really honestly depends on the context in which we're talking. And we kind of have to take the whole epidemiology of AMR and this like massive interconnected web where you've got humans being direct contact with humans or other animal species. You've got surface runoff, um, bioaccumulation, carcass disposal, everything kind of can move from effluents out into the environment or it can be from different people defecating in the environment or animals defecating in the environment, getting into our waterways. It could be from aquaculture and it could be as a result of farming. It's a whole big strand of different areas that can kind of all interconnect. I mean, if you take farming specifically, then we tend to be more worried about the antibiotics with long half-life lives that can bioaccumulate. And 
I would say that that's not too common in the UK is when an animal dies, usually that has to be disposed of correctly in Britain. But in other countries, those kind of carcasses can then leach down or be scavenged by predators and then it kind of feeds back into the food web that way. So when you say sort of leaching down bioaccumulate, what do you mean there? So when you give a drug to any animal, whether that's a human or a domestic animal or a wild animal, it has a time of action in the body and it kind of gets stored in the body until it's broken down. And the time it takes it to divide in half is known as its half-life. So the longer something can exist in our bodies, the longer its duration of action, if we die with that still in our body, and then what happens to that body as it's broken down into the environment, whether if it's incinerated, not such a problem. If it's left on a farm and it gets leached into the soil and then runs off into the waterways, it can accumulate in different systems. Okay. Oh, okay. I see. I see. I see. And so, Barbara, your work, you you look at actually monitoring sort of water and wastewater. So how does that factor in? Like, what sort of stuff do you see? We specialize in large-scale monitoring campaigns, and we don't necessarily only include uh, wastewater, but also the kind of wider environment. And it is nicely linking with what uh, David has already introduced us to, the so-called One Health philosophy. So we look at whole river catchments, and uh, this is really the only way to understand key drivers behind deteriorating environmental public health. And AMI is part of this uh, picture. So we mine for both chemical and biological data, but mainly chemical. I'm a chemist, so we're looking for antibiotics and the metabolite. And yes, we do it especially in wastewater um, because there is a, uh, information locked in, in wastewater about that can inform us about a community's health and well-being. So, and this uh, approach is called wastewater-based epidemiology. You must have heard about this because it, it uh, has been applied to, to track uh, SARS-CoV-2 in communities during uh, COVID pandemics. So, we develop monitoring campaigns with uh, one health philosophy in 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 mind, which is of particular relevance to AMR. Okay, and like I know, I, I must have heard of it. You know, we a lot of us have heard of it in terms of sort of SARS-CoV two. So, David, like as Barbara and Kurt have mentioned, you know, these drugs can end up in the environment. Like, do we have an actually? Do we have a comprehensive picture of how big and wide-ranging the issue is like in the uk or globally well i can answer it in a number of answer the question in a number of different ways um uh, on a global scale we're developing a very good sense of i'm particularly interested in drug resistance and the chemicals themselves are actually part of that equation but not necessarily always the driver of the equation in the environment but they're there's just been recently done a global study that covered 101 countries looking at resistance in sewage around the world. And it provided us a, has provided us a really nice sense of the types of resistance that exist. We have also had equivalent surveys that we've done for the chemicals. And um, we now, and what we've found from all of that is how different different parts of the world are in terms of the links between chemicals, the environment, sanitation, and the various different drop potential effectors of AMR. So um, to answer your question is, is we know it's everywhere. We know it's different from one place to another, and the drivers are very local, tend to be very local, though there is some global interconnectedness. 
And I think the question marks really are related to the pathways by which the resistance moves around the environment and how that moves backwards and forwards within clinical and veterinary uh, systems. And that's one of the big debates really, it's, it's related to that. So the answer is we know a lot about what's where, but we don't always know why. What sort of information or what sort of tests would you need to do in order to get that why? Um, we, there's a whole suite of ways you can measure AMR and chemicals. Barbara's the expert in the chemicals. I, we do the AMR tracking. Um, we use a combination of classical microbiology, just growing organisms on auger plates. But we also do quantitative genetics and genomics. And one of the things, and, and in fact, we do all of them at the same time because the bacteria themselves are what make an animal or a human unwell, whereas the genes that code for the things that make an organism resistant are, are, are sort of amorphous and across the environment. And, and so um, what, 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 we, what we, we do, it, so we monitor at a number of different ways. The global assessment is primarily using genomics and sequencing, sort of like what was done during the pandemic. But we also do targeted gene quantification. We do targeted microbiology relative to particular, say, zoonotic pathogens. Uh, so there's this, it's, it's really a suite of methods um, and, and each method provides you something different, whether it's strategic and global or something very specific and local. And, and Barbara's done a lot of work on the specific and local stuff, linking link that, that uh, and so have we, but uh, Barbara's done it in the UK. Barbara, he's, he's throwing you in there. You've got to tell me a bit more about what you've done. Well, I don't know where to start. So, so yeah, we, we, we are interested in time series, so longitudinal work. So. Um, I believe that in order to get a better understanding of potential drivers within within a studied location, you need to do the job properly in a way that you that you um, stay in one area and study for uh, extended period of time. And we have done this in southwest uh, England. Uh, we studied some of the cities for for longer than than one year. I think for for the city of Bath, we have longitudinal studies that are around three years long. We work very closely with with Wessex Water is our local water utility. We have amazing collaboration here uh, in terms of sharing ideas and, and learnings uh, from the Avon catchment that, 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 that we are focusing on. And yes, we are chemists. We focus mainly on chemistry. We look for various different antibiotics and, and, and the metabolites in, uh, in the catchment. And we try to make links between uh, um, uh, these chemicals and also other ones that are present in the catchment, so other pharmaceuticals, uh, pesticides, industrial chemicals, there might be, uh, there is more and more evidence uh, about potential linkages with AMR. And we try to understand whether they they, they uh, somehow can correlate with with AMR prevalence, but also we look at other uh, factors uh, such as socioeconomics uh, uh, as well. So uh, a lot of work done within one catchment, we understand it very, very well now. Okay, so you're doing this work in sort of this one area in the the southwest like talk us through it how does this work what do you do i'm imagining you in big welly boots walking down to the local river with some sort of device how does it work <laughs> okay before we talk about devices i want to emphasize that actually there's a lot of planning that goes into the monitoring process so before we sample 
we need to have a proper robust study design because if we don't do this properly uh everything else will, will will not work well so we'll still get the data but not very meaningful uh, data so the study design is critical as well as the, the sampling regime so yeah we do go out there and, and collect samples sometimes this is simple grab sampling sometimes it's very complex composite sampling we also use passive samplers it really is down to the question that we want to um, uh, answer but yeah just to emphasize the study design and sampling regime are as important as the technology that we use for for the quantification of analyzing question and and yes, we tend to operate as zero D now and uh, kind of large geographical areas, not only our Avon catchment, which we really, really like working with, but we also work across across countries and continents because as we all know, pollutants know no boundaries. So yeah, we need to all work together. We have very strong international network, um, sharing information, methods, data and samples. Uh, and this is really the way forward also in the context of One Health. So. In terms of methods, analytical methods, we use mass spectrometry, and uh, it is it is there is no better technique really to to capture complexities of the chemical makeup in environmental uh, samples. And yes, we can do it uh, as David has mentioned for the uh, gene dimension, IMR uh, dimension. We can do targeted analysis, so we focus on individual chemicals with our mass spectrometers. Uh, as well as we can do uh, non-target screening um, and trying to understand a little bit more about what's uh, out there in the environment that is not part of our thinking when we when we select targets. Just thinking about that, because I know, you know you're working in lots of different areas, but I think about the Southwest and mm -hmm. in the Southwest sort of the UK Somerset, um, there is quite a big farming element. Uh, back to you, Kurt, with that. Like, when we think about antimicrobial resistance sort of in the farming context and the animal context, like how did we get to this point where we have to think about uh, antimicrobial resistance as a problem when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to farming? Like what, what has got us to this point? So think about it probably logically. We Back, back in time, like post-war period, when we started to get this really industrialization of our agricultural development, and it, from being blatantly honest, and at one point, antibiotics were kind of seen as this magic bullet that would we were using both a sub-therapeutic dose, so a dose that wouldn't cure an animal but could just maintain a level to reduce the infectious disease burden. They were actually used also as growth promotants at one time point. This has all been outlawed now back in 2006, and the EU has just stopped prophylaxis use um, from 2022. That was an EU directive back in 2019. Like policy takes quite a long time to catch up to the science, is what I would say with regards to the farming. But even within farming, we have different sectors that you, you can't, and they all kind of act in isolation. When we talk about pigs and poultry, which we know are an issue when it comes to AMR and particularly overuse of antibiotics, the reason for that though is because these tend to be in very intensively reared systems. Whilst if you can compare that to a ruminant system like a beef or a sheep flock, or that they're out on the countryside for a long amount of time we don't tend to see this really high use of antibiotic um being used particularly in that regard so it's kind of a really difficult question from a farming perspective because on the one hand we need them to treat individual animal cases and as vets we still are allowed to do that but particularly back in time when we were using them prophylactically as this kind of meaning we didn't have to worry too much about poor husbandry practices that was obviously a problem in the past and so now sort of as things change new legislation new policy although slow 
has now been put in place. What are now examples of good practice in that area? So if, if you want to talk about, there's a difference between countries here. But if you want to talk about a UK specific one, we have something known as like a red tractor scheme. Now, this is a private assurance scheme. This isn't a legislative assurance scheme, but this, if the farmers want to sell their products, realistically, they need to be red tractor kind of branded. And this basically means that they have a yearly review with their veterinarian that goes over their whole antibiotic uses. What antibiotics are they using? How often are they using them for? What diseases are they actually treating them for? And this kind of helps to monitor whether they're using any HPCIAs or the highest priority critically important antibiotics of concern to the World Health Organization. And we really want to be not using those realistically at all. So we're trying to stick towards more things like pen basic penicillins. And these yearly reviews are actually being really helpful. What I would say is that in this regard, the farmers kind of get a bit of a bad reputation because they have seen quite a lot of habitual change and they're getting a lot better at using lower priority antibiotics whilst actually from a veterinarian's point of view some of our small animal cases will still use drugs that are particularly we want to protect for people medicine and so farmers can sometimes get labeled with a bit of a bad stick in that regard oh i feel bad for farmers now um but it's good to know that there's so much going on then there are real steps being taken to prevent what could be a very bad case scenario um, and with that in mind, David, I've got a question that I completely thought up myself. Um, when it comes to sort of that link between animals and humans, what sort of data do you need, you know, uh, to be able to track sort of the, the uh, how transmission and sort of the spread of AMR between animals and humans in the environment? Like, how, how does that work? Well, one of the things that's happened over the last five years or so is our ability to quantify uh, chemicals and genes and bacteria at a very fine level from a particular source and a particular place has got quite a bit better. So what we find, though, is that there's different pollutant sources. It might be from an animal operation or it might be from a hospital uh, that might have AMR zoonotic disease in them. And those places, you can characterize them chemically and genetically so that they've got sort of like a fingerprint. And so what we've been doing a lot is, is developing these chemical and genetic fingerprints that tell us, okay, this body of water or this soil is being impacted by a hospital, or this body of water or soil is being impacted by runoff from an agricultural operation. And it, so it's this genetic and chemical fingerprinting that is our way of trying to tease out the various different complicated sources and things. So we know in an agricultural operation, there's all different sorts of sources, for example, or in a, in a community, there's all different potential sources. So what we've been using is genetic and chemical source tracking as a way of saying, okay, 23% of the source is from hospitals, 47% is from human-associated community activity, and the rest is unexplainable. And we need to know that because that then allows us to choose how we start solving the problem. And, and so it, it's, it's where the type of I, stuff I do is genetic source tracking and the stuff that Barbara does, which is chemical source tracking, that sort of comes together and it allows us to create signatures that allow us to maybe answer questions like, like the ones that were just brought up to do with what's happening in an animal operation. So we can then start saying, okay, this particular point in the operation or this particular point in the community is responsible for 50% of what we find in the environment. Therefore, if we fix that point, then we can have a more dramatic effect relative to the solutions. Okay, so it's really building up like a, a database and really building up sort of a, these key characteristics so you can better 
understand what's happening in a certain environment, a community, and then potentially translate that knowledge into other places around the world? Yes, exactly. And, and, and we are actually involved in the global screening process that's trying to come up with a signature for rural Bolivia or urban, urban Malaysia. And so those will tell us things that we can see. And if we see signatures that are of that type, we can potentially track them as they move in and out of the place. It might be within a local environment or it might be within a global environment. And that's why this most recent study has been so useful is it, it looked at 101, almost half the countries in the world. And they, we now have a signature that tells us what AMR roughly looks like in that country. And that then allows us to look at the connectedness between countries and international spread. Oh, wow. That's really, that, that's really, really fascinating. And like, obviously, um, the key underpinning all of this is that it's, it is, it, we were talking about one health, we we're talking about human health. And, you know, this stuff is about human behavior. So in terms of like waterways to begin with, uh, Barbara, like what happens to what can happen to humans when we, you know, if we're consuming water or, you know, consuming products um, that have been, I say, contaminated, but have sort of wide levels of uh, microbes that are resistant? So in terms of, um, I guess we need to think about um, um, how we get exposed to uh, to, to both um, the chemicals themselves, so antibiotics. Sometimes we, we are exposed uh, intentionally. We take them because we are ill, uh, but also we might get exposed unintentionally, and this is via our uh, drinking uh, water. Um, as well as if we are fond of uh, open water swimming or or uh, water sports uh, full stop, we expose ourselves um, to via environmental waters. And the level of exposure will be will be different depending on where we are. So in terms of drinking water, when we think about um, uh, infrastructure rich, rich areas, so Western countries, for example, um, the, the level of exposure will be lower simply because we have a very effective treatment process, drinking water treatment process in place, and this is usually kind of chemical and, and, and physical processes driven. Uh, this, is, this is different uh, when we look at uh, lower resource settings with uh, uh, not enough infrastructure, no infrastructure at all, as well as lack of sanitation. So exposure to both chemicals as well as, um, a, as, well as um, a, the biological agents that, that, that are resistant uh, is, uh, is 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 higher, and when coming back to the to the kind of um, Europe itself uh, with 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 infrastructure in terms of um, uh, uh, good treatment of drinking water, the higher the population, the bigger the problem. Uh, so we we could see in our own research that that the density of population is directly linked with environmental deterioration. So when thinking about solutions, it's not only technology that can solve the problem. Uh, but also some social interventions that we might incorporate. We're actually trying to to test some of those in 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 Bath, working with social scientists too. When you are doing the work, the fact that you are looking for you know biological agents or you know chemicals, um, in looking at this, how do these things actually get into the water to begin with? Like I know it might sound like a simple question, but just so I can understand it. So there are a few different ways uh, and. Uh, uh, one will be when we think about uh, antibiotics, 
and this will be mainly primary care. So what we get uh, via our um, uh, uh, after our meetings with with, uh, with visits to to, to, to GPs and uh, hospitals too. Um, uh, as well as agricultural usage, and Carl has nicely introduced us to the, the concept of usage of, of antibiotics in uh, in farm animals, uh, and as well there is this 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 production of pharmaceuticals uh, happening not in the UK as as much. Uh, the production dimension is 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 of critical importance somewhere else in the in the in the um, um, world. Um, so um, yeah, there are various different sources. And as I mentioned earlier on, actually our our usage of of, of antibiotics is 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 directly linked with uh, with uh, the presence in the environment. And when it comes down to um, uh, resistance microorganisms, the situation is similar. So this is we will be excreting those and and, and contaminating the environment as well as uh, farm animals. So uh, antibiotics and resistance genes. Um, will be uh, directly linked with with the presence of, of 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 people and farm animals in the catchment. Oh, that's I mean that's really really interesting. And like in terms of us looking at it from a one health perspective, you know, you mentioned that you know it increased population density, increased antibiotic usage, all of that is linked to uh, an increase in what you're seeing in the water. But uh, for us humans, in terms of like consumption, you talk about water, but talking about food in general. Back to how uh, to antibiotics in animals can affect humans. Like, what are the pathways there? Because is it that we're just consuming, you know, animal products, consuming meat, and it's go getting to us that way, or is it more about the environment? Sort of as David and Barbara have talked about that interplay with you know animals and the environment and stuff. What is it? What is it there? Okay, cool. I'm going to have to break that question down into several parts, if that's all right. Yes. So the first bit where you said antibiotic use in animals and it's affecting humans. Um, okay, so there's, there's different modes of transmission that can occur, direct or indirect. With regards to the farm animals, if we're talking about something in the United Kingdom, for example, or the EU, consuming animal products is not going to be a humongous source of antimicrobial transmission to us directly. That's largely because, as Barbara alluded to, that we have better resourcing for the surveillance programs that we have in place. So we actually have some really robust and implemented, and I'll, I'll emphasize the implemented surveillance programs here, which are then audited and they're always fed back to different levels of um, the regulatory authorities. What I will say, though, is that that can be different if we look at some lower to middle income countries, just because the, the level of resourcing might not be there. Realistically, where do we think about the AMR onto an animal carcass, it's going to come largely from your GI tract or your fecal bacteria, so things like E. coli, Campylobacter, Salmonella. So when we when we also then have poor hygienic dressing, which is actually the process of turning an animal body into a product, if that is done poorly, you can then start to see increased contamination risks at the animal product scale. But this tends to be country-specific, and it's not something you're going to really come across largely in the United Kingdom or the EU, for example. If you do then look at the lower to middle income countries more specifically, domestic productions in kind of live animal markets or backyard farming where you slaughter your own animals is actually going to have a higher risk of cross-contamination than you are in those conventionally high throughput abattoirs and the large industrial meat exporters, again, due to the surveillance programs that are going to be in place. If I step away from farming for a sec, but still linked to the kind of the animal products area that you're talking about, another really good way of transmitting 
add AMR to people is this new trend. I'm going to have to bash on the small animal owners here again and say that the raw pet feeding, so raw food diets, I don't know if anyone's aware of that, is where you're, you're actually feeding animals products so that have usually come from animal origin. So, And I, when I say this, I mean like offal. So it's going to be gastrointestinal tracts, kidneys, livers. And the whole idea between raw feeding is it's not been gone through any additional production steps. So it's not been heat treated, for example. So what we tend to see there is that those that kind of feed can be higher levels of resistant E. coli, Campylobacter or Salmonella. That will then start to infect the actual small animal itself. So with that, I mean a dog or a cat. People interact with their pets. That can then pass it back to us. So it's this whole big spread that I said, when I go back to my first question you asked me in the beginning when you said, how does it get into the environment? It's this really big interconnected web, and Barbara's alluded to that with regards to the waterways. And it, it's just this whole big different chain of command that we can get it elsewhere. So I wouldn't be too worried about eating meat products specifically or animal products specifically in certain countries. In other countries, I would. And if people are feeding their animals raw feed, I definitely would be concerned about AMR. Does that make sense or did I just completely waffle? No, that makes complete sense. I'm really glad you said it because there are so many people online uh, who make people, I have a dog who's wonderful and perfect, and they make people feel bad because they're like, oh, you aren't feeding your animal a raw, but raw is the best. You should always, I only source raw, every, this, that, and the other. So I'm really glad you've told me that. So when they try and make me feel bad, I can go back to them and said that my mate, Kyle, you know Kyle, right? Do you mean Kurt? No, Kyle said this. <laughs> it's really interesting because it, they also then puts a lot of pressure on us as vets because we even have to educate the owners about the risks, not just to themselves, but other people that come into contact with their pets because their pets hmm. not just going to spread it directly to the household. It could be extra household spread. People like to have their dogs lick their face and stuff or the cat might come and sit on your chest like, it can just spread really nicely all over the place. I, I, I really like the idea of you uh, you having to chastise these really posh people uh, who are doing raw feeding. So I'm really glad. I, I, I really like this image. So David, <laughs> with uh, with that in mind, um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> sorry, I've taken a moment to laugh. <laughs> so with uh, what Kurt mentioned in mind there, like talking about, in different countries in say more the developing world low middle income countries the spread of amr um, with the environment what sort of differences and similarities do we have here compared to say the uk or in the eu you previously mentioned looking at sort of fingerprints and hallmarks of amr spread what what, what can you tell us about that kirk's comments were were excellent in the sense that it it, it basically said different places in the world are really different and in terms of how you deal with AMR spread and so forth. And a colleague of mine did a large study about five or six years ago on one particular type of clinical resistance strain that was found in hospitals. And what they did was they looked at all the socioeconomic and technical factors that might explain the, the levels of this particular type of resistance strain in hospitals. And it was across 57 countries. and. What they found was that, you know, everybody in the world is using antibiotics for therapeutic and in some places non-therapeutic purposes. But the question is, what is the real reason and we get higher levels of resistance in one place versus another? And what I, I think there's a really important message is that the most significant factor for a country 
is the level of sewage infrastructure that country has. It's the number one factor that drives AMR in hospitals. Second is actually uh, whether the country has a public health care system. And the third is whether the place has, uh, is, has got high levels of political corruption. And the reason, that, uh, note that none of those three were actually how much antibiotics people use. And the reason is, is that you, when you use an antibiotic and you don't appropriately use, treat the waste, or if you don't have a regulatory system that's legally binding, or if, if you don't have a centralized method of managing care for a country, you get AMR at high levels. And to me, that says that, 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 that really the solutions related to this is place specific. So places that don't have high levels they don't have public health care. They don't have good levels of sanitation. They don't have uh, well-regulated systems relative to behavior, particularly related to waste. Those are the places that almost always have the highest levels of AMR. And unfortunately, that really describes a lot of many countries in the emerging and developing world. And it's part of the reason why we are so fortunate being in a place like the UK is that we may not have the highest thoughts about our government, but at least we've got infrastructure, we manage our drugs, we've got public health care, and those are our big protectors. And we've got wastewater treatment plants and water treatment plants that work. I mean, you know, you mentioned those three key points talking about, you know, sewage systems, public health and political corruption being, you know, the, the, the most important things and not even thinking about scientifically there, thinking about antibiotics, thinking about the biological factors. Like, I, I find it wild. How long have we known that? Is this something that has just come out? Or, you know, is this something that's been known for 20, 30 years? That's a tricky question. I'm pretty old. And I've, I've had this strong suspicion for about 20 years. And, and we've had evidence to suggest this from work in primarily in Latin, Latin and Central America, that what I've described to you, which was done in a study in 2018, was almost certainly the case. The problem is we've we've had a lot of trouble trying to convince traditional people in public health that this is really important. And these factors that don't seem to be directly related to treating a patient are the factors that are actually affecting the patient's health the most. Interestingly, we find vets much more cooperative. <laughs> vets, vets are much more aware of the holistic nature of, of healthcare relative to their patients, which is, might be a cow. But the bottom line is we people in the environmental surveillance and studies work, we've known, we did feedlot studies in the United States in 2007. And almost everything I believe now, I learned from a study in 2007. It was just a matter of not being able to convince people that it was real. Hearing that, and sort of, I still think of 2007 as being like three years ago. So it's wild to me that how much time has passed, one, and that I'm getting up closer to death too but the things haven't really changed or that the, we wish things are improving I, I we've made quite a dramatic improvement in the last three years but it was it was slow and now there's been a crescendo of activity and it's happening both within the uk and around the world and that's really positive excellent i mean and i also like the fact that uh kurt uh david you said that you preferred kurt over barbara which is nice <laughs> vets are apparently <laughs> the best that's that's what we've learned. I'm sorry. And I could have told you that. I could have told you that chemists, especially chemists from the University of Bath, who don't allow me to use their mass spectrometer, even though I want to and it's 1am, uh, are in fact the worst. So 
Um, how, with that in mind, um, do we have a good idea? So in terms of waterways and antimicrobial resistance or sort of chemicals in the water, do we really have a good comprehensive picture of how it all works in the in the UK? Have we mapped everything? Do we know exactly what we're we're talking about here? You know, David mentioned about doing fingerprinting and understand communities all around the world, but in the UK with our waterways, do we have a really good picture? They, we don't. I think that kind of, <laughs> we don't have the full picture because there is there is it's a it's a really really complex, but we are getting there. Uh, so being a chemist, I look at uh, antibiotics and we see the changes in antibiotic uh, presence in the environment is very much linked with the way we consume them because we consume more in winter time and when we consume we excrete within one day or so and we see this in our environment it's not the case with amr uh, resistant uh, organisms and david might be able to tell you more about it the process is is, is longer in duration in terms of micro get, microbes getting resistance um, so they kind of we're trying to understand the correlations between antibiotics and, and resistance um, yet we don't have a full picture to be able to provide um, comprehensive answers so there is a lot of work still to be done but I feel in terms of solving AMR problem we need to think about non-technological at source solutions to, to the issue so limiting usage um, as well as knowing what happens to pharmaceuticals if we don't want them anymore. Very often we simply dump them down the drain. We shouldn't be doing this. So the educational dimension is still lacking in, in many places. Sorry, when you say we don't want the pharmaceuticals anymore, when you say dump them down the drain, do you mean quite literally like large scale pharmaceutical companies dumping them? Or do you mean everyone's nodding on this stream right now? It's an audio medium, so you can't tell the listeners, but everyone's nodding and that's really scaring me. But do you mean in a sort of a very small scale, people throwing things down the drain? Or do you mean large pharmaceutical companies throwing things down the drain? We do this and I will go back to waste based epidemiology. Yes, it's used for, for, for uh, uh, um, tracking SARS-CoV-2 communities as well as illicit drug usage, but we also used it to, to understand consumer behavior. So with our longitudinal studies, so we collect samples um, every week, twice, twice, twice a week, and we did it for, for, for a few years now. We see occasionally big spikes of pharmaceuticals, random ones. Sometimes it's fluoxetine, known as Prozac. Sometimes it's one of the antibiotics. And I think this is linked mainly with, with, with us and what we do in our households. We, we, we get better. We have this unspent um, uh, pharmaceutical antibiotic, and we don't know what to do with it. And very often we just uh, dispose of it directly uh, via our drainage system and what we should be doing is we should go back to uh, to pharmacy and and ask for for his disposal again education is is, is lacking in this in this domain uh, and we are we are working towards making it more um acceptable in our communities there's not only paper and plastic needs to be uh, returned for recycling but also our pharmaceutical yeah i was just going to say the one thing that barbara didn't say was that in a place like the UK, it's not the industries that are discharging down the toilet. It's it's individuals across the community. Um, though there are parts of the world where discharges are that blatant, they're down, down the sewer line without treatment. Um, and uh, and but they're more in developing, mostly in emerging countries. So I think the issue is that it is what Barbara is saying is that we use massive amounts of chemicals on, at a community scale. And those often are put down the toilet, even though our 
local GP tells us not to. Kurt, you've mentioned that when it comes to farming, you know, with animals, there are quite a lot of policies and you know the people doing this work these farmers take it very seriously so in terms of managing unused pharmaceuticals on that side like what are the policies so unused pharmaceuticals should be returned to your veterinarian like we will take them back and dispose of them it's kind of the same as when you talk to a doctor and a gp and they tell you to return your drugs to the pharmacy or to the medical practice yourself so the farmers do do that because it is audited again by the different schemes that I mentioned earlier. So they always ask, how do you dispose of your um, unused drugs? And the answer needs to be returning it to the vet. You can make the most incredible legislation in the world. It doesn't mean that people are always going to follow it. And Barbara's hit the nail on the head with that education policies. Like this needs to be more discussed and more opened. And there are countries in the world that exist that have incredible education, this really great sense of citizenship in their citizens and they always take this like almost like as a proud source of duty and then we have other countries and i would probably include the uk in this where we don't necessarily do that to the best of our ability oh okay okay and so i've got the three of you here you know kurt we're talking about animals barbara we're talking about water david we're talking about you know the wider environment and health and i like you three all right we're all friends now i want you to get money Okay, this is my gift to you. So what can the three of you do in terms of collaboration? Like how can your individual fields all come together to get a, to have all of us get a better sort of one health approach to antimicrobial resistance and how we understand antibiotics? Like how could that work? Or I want some ideas. Prior to the pandemic, I don't think most people knew what one health was probably with outside, outside of our fields, but the G7 even mentioned in their latest meeting that they wanted to follow a One Health approach. But it doesn't necessarily trickle down to on the ground or people know what that even actually means. Like I, I've done research with dairy farmers and asked them to define One Health and they kind of just look at me blankly. So we, we, I think what Barbara said about education is probably rule fact number one. We need to really work on educating people to operate more interdisciplinary under One Health if we're going to try and get all of this stuff sorted. If I may add, so One Health sounds, sounds amazing, and, and this is the way forward with AMR. And we do actually work together in terms of uh, research uh, in academia. We do work across disciplines. We work closely with private sector, with the government. But the biggest issue that we have is that our ideas and what we put forward as, 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 as projects we want to deliver on are driven by, by funding. Uh, at the end of the day, we, we need to get some results to, to, to start. And funding is short in duration. I think the maximum can apply for usually three years' worth. And AMR problem uh, is, is, it has, it will span, has to span, be, be, be beyond a three-year uh, program that we can get funding for. So what I'm trying to say is that we will never be able to, to, to fully understand the AMR problem in its uh, a very strong longitudinal dimension if we are driven by short-term um, funding opportunities. So I think there is this uh, genuine uh, interest and need in working together across across the board in terms of science and, and various sectors. But we really need to think um, um, beyond the, the kind of the, the, the few years worth of funding schemes that we have. And I know it's extremely difficult, but this would be the best approach in terms of taking things forward. Mm. David, what do you think? How could you make use of brilliant waterways expert Barbara and a wonderful animal expert Kurt? Well, I mean, we're, we're actually doing studies like this already. Uh, 
where we are, if I was my, writing my proposal and this, we were going to be the three co-PIs, what we would do is I'd ask Kurt to say, okay, lay out four or five different types of animal operations that are operated in a different manner. And then I would say, okay, you tell us all the key nodes within those systems that you would like to know something related to AMR and chemicals. Then I would, Kurt would then tell me, okay, this is what I want to know microbiologically and genetically. And he would tell Barbara what he wants to know chemically. Then we would basically gather all that data and put it back into Kurt to say, okay, how can we explain the movement of resistance in that system? And this is sort of what Barbara just said, but in a more clinical specific way is that this cannot be done in one snapshot though. It's gotta be done over seasons. It's gotta be done over years. But if we do that in enough places, we'll start understanding about which factors within a particular operation are most and least important relative to mitigation and change. We've been talking about AMR now for like years, but the best analogy I can give, it's like that frog in the hot water. When the COVID pandemic hit, it was suddenly like we were all in boiling water and everyone was panicking and funding appeared out of nowhere. And then but the frog in the AMR one, we're all kind of just like sat in the water and the water's rising, but we're all just kind of sat here like, oh, this is fine. It's that burning house meme. And yet we've been talking about AMR for years and it's it's getting worse all the time. I've got one positive thing to say, though. And this is a positive. I agree with you, completely agree with you. One of the things that's happened in the last two years, and it's very, very promising relative to addressing global AMR and getting people doing more studies like the one I just described, is that the United Nations has had something called tripartite for a number of years, which looks at animal, uh, it looks primarily, it looks at animal and human health from the perspective of the WHO, the OIE, and FAO, which is basically humans crops and animals. And last February, the WHO uh, created quadripartite. They now, it's tripartite doesn't exist, and quadripartite has now included the UN Environment Program. So now at the highest level we have in the world relative to health, they are recognizing that the environment is part of the matrix. And, and this is a consequence of the work of People like us who've been doing this for quite a few years, finally convincing the chief science officers in the different parts of the UN and also in governments across the world. When it comes to chatting to the general public, um, this part of my penultimate question, why, very, very briefly, um, each of you, why should they care about AMR and in the environment and antibiotics getting into the environment? If you could sum it up for them, in your own words, why should they care? I'll start with you, Kurt. If you, if you want your, when your dog gets really sick, you want the drug to work and cure them. Otherwise it's just thoughts and prayers. I'll be more generic here. So yeah, it's, it's about, it's about uh, our individual health and well-being, uh, also of our families and the quality of life because we are affecting not only ourselves, but also the, the wider environment. I think there, we should also thinking about a sustainable future. In other words, we can't rely on progressive increasing use of things. And, and so the way we should deal with problems in the future is by being a little bit more creative and less, uh, I don't know what the right word is, not exploitive, but we basically have to think more holistically in terms of the consequences of our actions. And, and so if we wanna have a sustainable world, especially if our population continues to grow, 
we, we have to be thinking about how we use antibiotics because they're a finite resource. And, and, and we've got to make sure we've got a system through all these different sectors that works uh, such that we're not causing uh, Kirk's uh, untreatable infection to not be treatable. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Kurt feels very happy about that. Um, <laughs> he's like, yes, finally, someone's making my life easier. Um, and so on my sort of last question, this might be uh, one for you, uh, David and Barbara, and that's Barbara most. Um, in terms of like climate change, are there links between like antimicrobial resistance and climate change? Like, does one affect the other? Climate yeah. change is, is affecting all ways of our lives. If we wanted to not, sometimes we don't uh, uh, want to recognize it, but it is. Equilibria shifting uh, in, in, in natural uh, and man-made driven processes. And, and uh, so uh, is the AMR problem. So they are, they are, uh, they are interlinked. Uh, and, and to be honest, we should not be discussing them in uh, a different manner. Climate change, antimicrobial resistance, uh, pollution in general, deterioration of environmental uh, health, they are all directly interlinked with, with our own health. And, and we should be, again, saying the One Health holistic approach, we should be uh, going outside, thinking about how we can interlink various different challenges, and they, they all have the same denominator. So for you, for each of you, what would your one key takeaway for them be? What would you say to them, uh, here is like this one thing that I would like to see done by the people in power, and that could make things work, all right? Kurt, what would your one key thing, one key takeaway be? We've got 8 billion people on the planet and we need to feed them. So we need to find sustainable ways to do that and don't rely on antibiotics. I think my key thing is to try and make particularly the public health medical community as aware of po as possible of the environment and other factors that affect the health of individuals. I tend to focus on details, and I struggle with the one uh, uh, take-home message. But uh, and again, it depends on who who we are talking to. But if it's if it's uh, uh, for the decision makers, um, um, invest in in large-scale longitudinal studies because we really need them for for better understanding of the issue, so we can tackle it in the best possible way. Thank all of you so much. Uh, you can actually see my face now. Um, this has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your time. All right, so that was actually a really helpful episode. I I was pro-vet before, but now I'm really pro-vet. All right, vets, I feel as though, are going to save us all. Now, thanks for listening, and make sure to join us in our next episode, where we talk about the incredibly light-hearted topic of infection prevention and control yes all right bye